Welcome to the Future of Protein Production Podcast. In this series, we will explore the technological advancements that are shaping alternative proteins. From cultured meats to plant-based proteins, we will talk to experts and innovators who are working towards a more sustainable, efficient, and kind protein production system. Join us as we dive into the exciting possibilities and challenges of the alternative protein production industry in the years to come. So guys, welcome to the panel. Uh, we've heard some really interesting stuff from our presenters here on just how exciting, I suppose, a field plant molecular farming is. And we've come a, a couple of times about it has been around for quite a while. I think, Bjorn, you were saying 2001, I think, uh, you started your, your journey. So it's not a new technology, but for food, it, and particularly ingredients to be directly consumed, it is a fairly new technology in, in, in that sense. So just one of the things I was thinking about there is, you know, what, um, what crops um, we can use and so on to, to, to do this. But um, actually, before I do that, um, Bjorn and Hank, I might just get you just to briefly say a couple of words um, about how you see um, plant molecular farming at space, and we'll we'll go alphabetically, Bjorn, and ju just start with you. Yeah. Yes. Hello, everyone. So very good to be with you. Uh, so, as you mentioned, I've been in this business for a very long time. We started our genetics twenty years ago, and and. Uh, so we have been developing uh, the barley plant to produce uh, different uh, proteins, both human and, and uh, animal proteins for the last 20 years or so. And actually, we, we introduced our first product line called Isokine, a human growth factor for stem cell research in 2007. And, and in 2020, we actually introduced a new product line called Mesokine for the these are animal growth factors for cell cultured uh, meat industry. So we've been in this for a long time. And uh, I have to say that uh, it's actually I'm experiencing uh, the kind of a second wave of this technology. It's still the same technology as 20 or even 25 years ago. It's still the same technology. But now we may be uh, seeing a new new area, era where actually this technology can be exploited much further to wide, uh, a wide, uh, for wider application and so forth, uh, not only improving agricultural traits like uh, previously, but also now producing animal proteins and, and so forth. So I, I think this is a very exciting time ahead of us now, but still there are huge challenges in front of us, for sure. Thanks, Björn. Hank, if you'd like to perhaps introduce yourself as well and give us a, a minute of where you see things. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Tony. Yeah, so uh, I work together with Gaston and then the rest of the Molec team uh, to actually make this, turn this into reality where we, uh, as the, the technology that Bjorn just alluded to has been present for, for a long time, actually getting it into our foods, which is the next step. Um, and I think, uh, you know, that's also been my, my lifelong passion, I would say, is, you know, combining animal and plant proteins uh, to make food that's you know, available to all and also affordable, you know, for, for the gross, uh, say, the gross majority of the world. Um, so that's what we're actually trying to do with, I think, with the wider molecular farming, uh, you know, movement, not only just within MULEC, 
is is to make all these animal proteins which have sometimes very unique functionalities or very unique nutritional profiles and make them available as widely available as plant proteins um so i guess yeah i guess that's it but uh i'm sure we'll get more into the technical details as we as we uh progress of how we want to you know to do that of course great Hank. thanks very much I don't know, um, Nicholas, whether there's anything you'd like to uh, to add after your after your talk before we get into the the panel itself. Mm, no, I think I, I very much align with Gordon that there is this actually new movements, and I think that the the pressure is really putting up. So from a regulatory perspective as well, I think um, the, the opening, so to say, is near. It's really the momentum is here, and we should we should really make use of it. Great stuff, and. Gaston, anything else you wanted to add from your last presentation before we start bouncing around a few questions? Well, Tony, I talk a lot. So <laughs> what I could say is that I'm really, really, as I said before, and I'm really happy to have this kind of debates or discussions about molecular farming. I believe that we need to put all the technologies on the table to solve the problems here, and the problems are huge. Uh, we need to face it, and we need to embrace science. That's we need to uh, I, we we need to 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 put science overall, you know, and and the time as as you said, Nicholas, the, the timing is perfect only for science, you know. Um, Post COVID, everybody's um, in a way uh, believing uh, a bit more in science to solve the problems. That's what 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 we are doing in time more. And, and I think you're right, Gaston. I mean, who would have thought? that on the news every day would be, and we've sequenced the um, genome of the uh, latest SARS-CoV-2 strain, and we found that it doesn't match there, and BA4 and BA5 and Omicron strains, and people are now just going, oh yeah, they haven't they sequenced that yet? They may not know even what they're saying, but that has now entered the common language in technology. To me, the most fascinating thing though is how much people accept technology in their medicine but not in their food ask them to inject themselves with something from a genetically modified organism fine sprinkle it on their food oh i'm not sure that i want to do that so i think that's a fascinating disjoint that, that we have and anyone else got any comments on that I'm um, sorry, but yeah, I, I have one, and 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 I had one because I'm I'm I came from the traditional meat industry, and my point of view is that there is one discussion for human consumptions and consumers, and there is another different type of discussion for the industry. Uh, there's there's something that uh, the consumers need to know. For sure, because we need to be transparent, but maybe we do not need to push them. Or but what we need is to have the regulators approving the product and giving confidence to the consumer that the products are safe for human consumption. And, and we need to be straightforward. Maybe we do not need to be the whole picture because there's so many so much technology to produce the current products right now, and the consumer doesn't know. Just believe that what they are consuming is safe. So I think I will split those discussions and I, I will encourage that that kind of debates. And I think on top of that, um, I think there is uh, the industry has a responsibility to not 
uh, you know, to go back and, and really see if it played a role in, in trying to put GM technology in a bad light. So, you know, in order to influence the consumer. So, you, you, as we all know, that there's been so much, you know, uh, uh, so many publications on, on the potential arm of, of GM-based foods where the evidence doesn't, there's no evidence to support that. So, I think also in the industry, people who've rid, ridden the way of, um, of anti-GM marketing. I think those are also the companies that need to be held, you know, already responsible, or at least you know, make sure that that they can can look back and say, "Well, actually, was this necessary? Did we need to create a whole a whole label saying non-GMO approval? You know, what 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 does that do for the food industry? How many lives have that saved, or all of a sudden? So, I I think that's that's the hybrid between consumers and, and the industry. How does that interface? I think that's really important. Yeah. Yeah, Nicholas, any anything you'd like to throw in there? Um, yeah, well, obviously the discussion on GM has been going on for, for very long, especially in, in EU and now in US. Uh, unfortunately, there's the labeling requirements, so sometimes we're going more backwards than forwards. Um, but I totally agree. It's all about informing consumers, getting them into the story, highlighting the benefits like we did at the very, Antonio, as you did at the very beginning of this uh, sessions. Um, and really getting them into the story. And then there will be more public pressure um, from the, the public themselves. But as uh, Henk also mentioned, also the companies, they have to keep on knocking on the same doors uh, persistently. Uh, and as I mentioned in my presentation, um, just make major starts with regulatory applications, major starts, because the more push there is, the more something has to happen there. Yeah. 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 I think actually, like I mentioned, uh, the second wave, it's also our second chance to use this uh, technology for the benefits of good. And, and, uh, but we have to wait, uh, definitely we have to see if it's going to be ignored again, this technology by governments, NGOs, uh, regulatory bodies, and even worked against. Uh, so we don't, don't end up in the same situation now as 25 years ago with uh, labeling a non-GMO inside or GMO inside and so forth, which is that I think during the, this uh, 25 years or so, lots of new technology has been introduced into food production and so on, but without any labeling. So it, it has this historical reason, which is more or less just political uh, because it's uh, all scientific literature and research point out to the fact that the GMO has been so far very safe, but it's still can be this technology still can be uh, it can still go the same way as GMO twenty five years ago. Hmm. I think Nicholas, you you brought up an interesting point there about government regulation. I mean, with the way technologies are advancing so rapidly, as we say, you know, if if um, regulators don't start thinking about the questions now. Are they simply going to be so far behind? Are they governments and regulatory bodies around the world basically ill-equipped to cope with the rate of change of technology? We saw in your slide, Nicholas, the difference between um, the US, the EU and Singapore in the amount of time they take to approve things. Are governments just simply bureaucracies that are going to be unable to keep up? The, the short answer indeed will be yes. And I think that's unfortunately you know, okay, cross that one off. <laughs> that's that's unfortunately how regulations work. Uh, they 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 get 
something needs to happen or there needs to be a reason why regulations are adopted. And, and maybe to emphasize a little bit of what I've said before, um, you need to tip the balance in favor of making the interpretations work for you. As changing the regulations will take a lot of time. Making work what we currently have, I think that is what we now have to focus on. Anyone else got any thoughts on regulator, maybe experience with regulators or what the issues are there? Well, I have one point here is that if you look at the pharmaceutical industry today, which is heavily regulated, the main players are huge players. There are no small, very few small pharmaceutical companies that have, pro that mm. have brought their, pro uh, brought their products uh, to the market. I think we more or less see the same situation today with the GMO. There are very few huge players that are capable of taking a product through this, this regulatory jungle and very costly uh, uh, road. So still to, we are seeing today the same situation as with, uh, within the pharmaceutical industry that it's only large players that are capable of doing this. All uh, at the same time, we see a lot of progress development and and uh, and entrepreneurship in, among many many smaller companies around the world. But they have a very little chance of taking their product all the way. It's still still a game for large companies, which is true, Bjorn. But at the same time, I also think that there are there is a lot of happening in joining forces. Uh, the budgets are really increasing, uh, that there are stakeholders, there are countries, there are actually a lot of countries in the EU which, which are in favor of uh, new genome techniques. So just to say again, I think there is the momentum to to change this a little bit, but I agree the history uh, is, is in favor of the multinationals so far. Okay. Um, uh, I think that, you know, we're in danger of having, which we have to a certain extent now, a two-stage or two-geared regulatory authorities, countries like Singapore without large vested interest groups steaming ahead. Other ones like the US, I mean, the FDA and the USDA have been at it for four years to try and regulate cultivated meat. I mean, four years, I mean, big as the imagination. And and next it's not even regulated. It's uh, yeah, it's secure. Like a, a, a baby step. Yeah. Oh, still, and so we're talking about you know population of ten billion in twenty fifty, but there'll be nine billion of them by twenty forty at least. And if regulation doesn't keep up, I see that as a real challenge to maximising what we can get out of these new technologies, particularly plant molecular farming because it is relatively easy to scale. You want twice as much, you plant twice as much. Now, how you balance that against the arable land argument is the interesting one, because something else has to either stop being grown or slightly reduced in yield or not used as much. So there's, there's a fair bit to talk about there. But I mean, in theory, if people got behind it, you could scale plant molecular farming once you had the, the, the product ready to go easily compared to constructing thousands, not tens of thousands of stainless steel bioreactors. Mm -hmm. um, Wait, so, Tony, just to follow up on that one, I think that's exactly why we should use Singapore as the opportunity yeah, to, to start tipping the balance, because indeed, if, if one country actually allows it, 
um, it, the pressure will increase on US and EU to make it happen. So let, let's see it as not more as an opportunity than than only seeing it uh, that countries are not willing to move forward. One for for against Ireland, because when you guys are developing products where you have the animal protein, so the recombinant protein in the product, so you don't separate it out and purify it. So technically, your products would be GMO. Whereas if someone's taken an extractive point of view, then the extractive protein or small molecule will not be GMO. Do you see advantages, disadvantages, or just we have to bite the bullet? Look, go ahead. Well, the thing is, yeah. Oh, the thing is, is, is that um, we, our vision is that we, you know, you, you could basically take this plant and and you know process it in any way you'd like. So we'd like to make this plant available to to processors, not only to Mulek, you know. So we, it really depends. If, if somebody wants to isolate that protein, that's fine. But that defeats the purpose and uh, of this of many low cost foods that we need and and the solutions that we're trying to work on. So. Uh, if you go back to your question on what is a GMO, I think that, that that's, you know, I'm not a regulatory expert, but I, I think one of the, the crazy parts is that in the EU, they say, and as Nicola said, is that yeah, the presence of DNA and it has to be a viable organism. You know, okay, so if we turn it into a flower, it's not an organism anymore, but there is DNA. Okay, let's say we break the DNA down to nucleotides. Is that still DNA? Well, according to the European Union, yes. So that's, that's just a super backward stance. In the U.S., they're a bit more pragmatic. So we, if we break that that down, if we break it down into small building blocks, we in the U.S. you have a very very good chance of of you know, of, of finding a, a good position. But actually, Mulek's true position is just to tell the consumer what it is. You know, this is bioengineered. You know, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, there, nothing else has been changed, or or you know, there's there's no connection to the the let's say the Monsanto type of of GM. Uh, you know, there's there's no pesticides or harmful pesticides that that are are used in conjunction with the growing of this crop. There's just uh, the presence of a single extra protein. You know, our technology we strive to use, um, uh, you know, uh, signals from the plant that are from the plant itself, and not any viral or any bacterial or any other types of signals. So we, we we try to keep the plant the plant only only changes that there might be an extra protein which is not found nor normally in that plant. Um, you know, so, so I, I guess, do we want to call it non-GMO or GMO free or what have you? I, I don't think so. Um, but if the regulators tell us to, you know, to, to jump through a certain loophole to make sure that we can sell the product there, then we might have to consider, uh, a specific group to say, okay, let's isolate it then for this specific country. Um, but I, again, I would say, you know, when, uh, when global events push the industry to adopt new technology, we just need to be ready. That's that's, and then regulators will follow. So if somebody had GMO sunflower oil half a year ago, I'm sure people would have formulated that into the product if they if they had the chance. Look, uh, I, what I find so fascinating, particularly with the EU and even in the US, is that random. It, Excuse me, random mutagenesis by gamma ray radiation, X-rays, and mutagenic chemicals is quite okay, and you can even call them organic. The red grapefruit in Texas, its parents were both produced through gamma ray radiation, and it's marketed as an organic fruit. Same thing in the EU; you can call some of these products organic. 
and yet they're against GMO and CRISPR editing and things like that. But because they've established plant breeding technique randomly producing mutagenesis, that is apparently quite okay. So you know, I, I find it uh, you know quite fascinating that um, you know off-target mutations, boy, give me CRISPR versus um, you know random mutagenesis from formaldehyde or gamma radiation any day of the week. But that's probably a whole other panel we should talk more about. But um, I suppose looking at the um, ones the where we have to do some processing of the product, is there enough? downstream capacity for when we do want to maybe isolate the protein or a small molecule from the plant, is there enough downstream capacity as we scale to address that? Or do we have the same problem of we need more stainless steel that we can get our hands on? Well, that, that's the beauty of, of molecular farming. So the downs, the initial downstream processing is regular, is the same as, as the, the current crops. So we're talking about cleaning, cleaning of the seed, it's exactly the same. You know, if we want to say, hey, uh, we want to process it to a protein isolate, yes, you'll run into some capacity issues as as a regular plant protein people are, are uh, or the, the conventional uh, uh, plant protein uh, processors are, are having issues with right now. But the beauty of molecular like, farming is that you can actually direct specific components to specific parts of the plant where your downstream processing could be the separation of bran, you know, from the endosperm and say, hey, listen, in the bran, we have this specific, I don't know, this specific component we want. And in the endosperm, we have this other specific component. And that actually is an enrichment step. So that means that you don't, you know, you're already separating your your product into, uh, into two useful products, which may or may not, depends on the expression levels, uh, have enough of your target protein in to be effective. Um, and uh, so downstream processing, again, it's, it's, it's very low tech. Uh, there, there's no, there, I mean, we're trying to stay away, uh, from anything that, that that's too expensive for the industry at this point in time. Um, who knows what, what will develop in the future. Uh, last comment on this as well is, you know, there are other technologies being developed to easily extract plant proteins by their, you know, either by their size or, or by their uh, properties. Well, obviously we can use this technology to enlarge the differences between the protein and non-protein uh, material in, in in a specific plant to make it easier to separate. So it could also be, you know, a, a trait that you're engineering into the crop to make it easier to separate. Let's say we go for super insoluble proteins. Uh, you know, they will be really, really easy to isolate from these other soluble plant proteins. So, I mean, you can think about these combinations to work with your process that you have available. Thanks, Ek. Build. Yes, so definitely, yeah. and of course you mentioned uh, Tony earlier that uh, the plant is a bioreactor, and unlike in our case, we use the barley seed to produce those uh, those proteins, and we're getting rid of lots of stainless steel by just using the seed to do it, and so it's all uh, so we only need the downstream processing, and and there like uh, Hank is uh, talking about, we can have a much uh, sim- more simplified. Uh, downstream processing technique, uh, making it relatively easy to scale up the production. So uh, in our case, where we are producing those animal growth factors for cell coated meat industry, uh, we see a, a vast opportunity to both bring down the cost of those animal growth factors just dramatically. At the same time, we relatively easy scale it up. 
and then you just have to need some uh, arable land to cultivate those plants and and uh, <laughs> of course it will you need that and and uh, we selected barley because the uh, barley plant is one of is the only uh, crop that can grow in Iceland and that's just uh, occasionally uh, <laughs> but it's still uh, it's still a crop and and uh, you can grow barley everywhere in the world basically with some exceptions like here in Iceland where it's difficult but but uh, you have to have a grass species you have to start with grass species for sure and uh, so making it uh, more easier um, do you guys think is there any limit on the type of plants we can use to even for plant molecular farming well it depends of what we want to do what you want to do um, if you focus on proteins the, the protein content of the plant is quite but quite um, important you know uh, yields are important this is not the same so if you want to produce a protein a foreign protein inside the, the crop it's not the same soybean that has 35 40 percent of protein content compared with a wheat that is is, is one digit so yield is uh, it's, it's really important, uh, but who knows? You know, um, in, in Mulet we we are exploring different other crops um, because we focus on a specific combination because we do not want to remove the protein with the original protein of the plant. So so we we focus on on on, on the on the final application. Know, by combining the specific crops with specific uh, specific DNA, um, but um, I think that could be it could be great to have more different modified crops uh, in in the futures. So I'm not talking only about uh, mostly soy, you know, uh, and, and at the same time, it's, it's important to consider the oil. Um, and and to recover more from 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 the same from the same crop, you know, to get high value by products at the same time. Mm -hmm. So this is the first step. That's there's a lot of different more things that we could do uh, with 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 the with the crops and when we do with the byproducts as well. It's just we, we might um, turn over a couple of the questions that we've got in the chat here, and the interesting one I think here is asking about um, will the general public accept plant molecular farming and this concern that gene plants that I use the wording here contaminate the food chain so is that is that an issue people who for whatever reason want non-GM or GMO plants or GE plants they're high what, what, I actually have, I'm hopeful for one thing. Uh, now I go back 25 years ago and uh, until now. Maybe we have a new generation of people now uh, so that I might think differently. And this new generation, of course, is following what is happening in terms of global warming and so forth. And maybe they're just uh, better equipped to take a rational decision than uh, the generation 25 years ago. Uh, at least I'm hopeful for that. 
Well, look, I, I think all the research I've seen, Bjorn, about Gen Z, and as I, I always talk about, we're talking the future, we're talking Gen Alpha, born 2010 onwards. In 2040, the oldest of those will be 30, and there'll be a lot of late teens and 20-year-olds in the mix as well. And research shows that they are far more likely to accept the technology in their food than any previous generation. And it's their values, their decision-making, which is going to drive the acceptance of a lot of technologies, not the boomers and not even the millennials, not even the Gen Zs. Because as we know, people I speak to with kids who are, um, you know, Gen Zs, uh, they drive what happens in the, in the house in terms of who eats what and the food they want to eat. Um, they know what they want. And if Gen Alphas are the same, then that could help drive a lot of these a lot of these tech technologies. What about, I mean, in terms of, obviously there is the possibility if you're growing a GMO crop side by side with a non-GMO crop, and there are people who, whatever reason, want non-GMO products, what's the solution there? Or is it just, that's just the way it is at the moment? Can I build on this? Um, so. I think I also mentioned briefly in my presentation, both US and Singapore, if, if there is GMO involved in the process, it, it, it will be assessed uh, on, on the more holistical parts. Uh, it's not only food safety, but also the environmental aspects will be assessed as parts of your uh, application. So in that sense, if, if the authorities are looking at it, and I think that's a, a very well, a valuable piece uh, that, that may help to give uh, less of concerns in terms of uh, contamination. Yeah. Well, and I've got, I'll, I'll talk about this. I think there's a, there a couple of things that we take a step, step back. You know, I, I think the contamination question is something that is technologically, you, could, you can solve for that, but it really depends on what plant you're thinking about. Because let's say, let's, let's say the real reason is fear of contamination, right? Um, then if you come up with a solution, okay, we'll do an, an indoor farm or aqua, aquaphonic type solution, you know, had you, people would come up with it with another solution. So I usually, usually I think, you know, this whole, uh, uh, you know, this cross contamination, uh, idea is, 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 a uh, I would say it's not their, their initial argument, uh, against G, uh, GM, but it's, it's the easiest one they can make, but, um, I'd say going forward, you can look at also other sorts of crop. You can look at non-food crops, you know, uh, which which would have a easier regulatory pathway. Uh, depends on the protein that you'd like to make. So if you're talking about a, a, a protein which, you know, which is a bit more difficult from a regulatory perspective uh, because it's potentially allergenic or what have you, you can always go for, towards a non-food crop route or a closed cycle. You can also take a specific crop which is not grown to a large degree and grow it only in a certain country. So for example, if we have this very specific, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, ancient grain that is not grown in the, in the country or usually grown in the country at high amounts, which is GM friendly, you could say, okay, from now on, everything that's grown in this country that's exported from this country is this specific GM crop. So there are things you can do, um, uh, to start growing with without having to address those uh, those those cross contamination issues, but at some point in time you would need a technology to be able to distinguish be between that. I fully agree. You need to control it and you need, you need to check. Um, but but the, 
that's not, I would say, the initial priority right now. That's working. It's working right now. Most of the corn and soy are yeah, for feeding. It's working. If you want to buy uh, a non-GMO soy, you could find it and you trust that the full value chain will safe and will contaminate and so on. So I think it's working. It's, um, um, the, the things are, 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 are were separated. Um, mm. I don't believe it's necessary to do it. Uh, at the end of the day, if you are eating an animal that that, that had uh, some GM feed, you know, it's quite the same. Uh, but you know, my point is that 98% of the soybeans in the United States are GM. And that's fine. That's nobody is scared about the 2%. Uh, no, no, no. And, and I think that's don't. I mean, that's the biggest um, animal feeding trial of a GMO product we've ever seen. That's true. <laughs> so that, yeah. If GMO would affect people, we'd have a lot of sick chickens, sick pet pigs, and sick cows. And well, I, I guess that that opens up a pretty interesting part. I mean, maybe for Bjorn because you know animals are this magic box that can turn GM into non-GM food. Right, that's that's what the European Union's position is on it. Uh, so I wonder what Bjorn's stance on is that on for cultured meats. You know, how how do you, are we going to see that if we add GM to the culture media, is then the final meat going to be also non-GM? Or how, have have you done any work on that? Or do you have any thought experiments you'd like to share with us? Well, uh, <clears throat> we're still. Waiting for the final uh, final uh, outcome of this, of course, but uh, most likely it will be uh, like in terms of animal growth factors being used in producing uh, cell-coated meat. Most likely within EU, I think it might be a food processing aid. And then we just have to show that uh, there are uh, just uh, only traces uh, left in the final uh, product. Of course, we believe and uh, we think, term in uh, uh, based on science, there won't be any traces, or more or less, you not detectable traces in the final product, which is the meat. So uh, we don't think this will be a problem, even uh, for the regulatory body and, and politically. I don't think it will be a problem for that. Yeah. I just got one interesting uh, question here. You know, I'll throw it out there. Is it theoretically possible to produce animal fat in plants? Well, you have to define. I think you have to define animal fats. It's it's, it's very heterogeneous. So yes, you can you can produce specific fatty acids in plants. You can direct uh, if the plant already produces a lot of oil. You can direct a certain percentage of that oil towards a spe very specific fatty acid fatty acid fraction. Um, like area has, you know, has acquired some of this technology where, you know, where we're just by the introduction of one enzyme in the pathway, you can actually, you know, you change, change the whole oil profile. The only problem is you should think about is that saturated fats, um, are produced very well in plants, which grow in very tropical conditions. So let's say you wanted to make animal fat, you'd need to have a plant that grows in a very warm warm environment otherwise you know the the, the the fats would not be liquid enough for it to be moved around the cell so i guess yes it's possible to to have saturated fats but the value of animal fats is not only 
only these specific fatty acids, but it's also, you know, how they're organized in, in animal tissue. So yeah, it, yes, it, you could produce the components, yes, but actually making animal fatty tissue, I think that's just too far. Yeah, would it, would it, would it be a benefit to the whole thing? I mean, because one of the biggest problems we've got with plant-based foods is taste. Most of them don't have the taste. I mean, it's just a, a fact. Um, and using some of these plant molecular farm products to improve the flavor profile. I mean, you guys mentioned, you know, putting animal proteins into, into plants. Um, I, I'm assuming there too, you could actually put flavor components into soybeans and into peas, which when then processed would then give a better tasting plant-based product than the current um, yeah. products that we have on market. Well, I mean, it would make more sense to knock out specific uh, or try to, uh, well, to use genetic engineering to limit off flavors um, and then only engineering specific precursors to flavors. Um, because as we all know, you know, it, and, and oil doesn't have a flavor, but if you break that down, all of a sudden it becomes a very smoky, grilly aroma that people associate with meat, for example. So, you know, it's it's about turning the plant into the plant that has everything, and when you break it down, that then then you find your components. Well, uh, see, there's a way, Tony, um, to to produce um, a current meat processing meat product right now, a sausage, uh, a burger, you know, uh, an animal-based one. We use more than ten different technologies. Now, uh, for a current sausage, you know. That's, we are used to that. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very common procedure. So to see it this way, um, um, I think that we we will probably need to combine different new techs for the new new products. Uh, mycelium is are, is great for for, for texture to replicate the, the texture of meat. Uh, fermentation is great for a specific. Uh, Specific um, uh, molecules and um, proteins and, uh, and ingredients. Culture meat is, is, is definitely great to, to get, uh, you know, the, the the ground meat. And, and molecular farming is definitely great to get the, the scale and, and cost for the for the bulk proteins and for a specific molecule, but not for all. So mm -hmm. probably we will start seeing some combination of technologies in the future. To get better products and to improve what 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 your point Tony taste better products that's what we need to 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 get not only the cost is we need to replicate the malt experience we need to get great food you know to convince the the final consumer and to to make quick decisions say okay the price is fine and and, and if we get the the a, a price match and um, parity and tastes good and the texture is great. Okay, so we will start shifting, not only for the vegan niche, but for, the, for people that is concerned about the planet, uh, but they still want to get uh, a good steak once a while. I think actually, I think actually, uh, in addition to this, uh, that we may see hybrid food that is based on just adding a few percentage of animal cells to it, then I would say 
I could see easily uh, some a uh, plant-based food with maybe 10% of fat cells that are produced through cell-coated meat industry. And actually, we know that companies, some companies are focusing on that. And I think that may improve taste and texture also. Yeah. Well, look, gentlemen, we've, uh, we've just about come to the end of our panel. So what I'd like to do is I'll go around in alphabetical order and just, if you have something you'd like to add for 30 seconds, and I'll, I'll, I'll get the stopwatch out. So just th 30 seconds. I remember that, Gaston, you told me you were going to talk too much. So 30 seconds. Um, just anything you'd like to sum up. We'll start alphabetically. Bjorn, anything you would like to, to say just to finish off? So uh, just uh, to end with this, that uh, I I think I'm, I'm now uh, very optimistic. I wasn't that a few years ago. I, I think I'm very optimistic that this technology will actually be uh, finally be used uh, by many different companies to produce a vast uh, array of different products that are uh, have this uh, have this uh, objective of of improving our 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 uh, earth and that uh, to take into consideration uh, the threat we are we are facing with now globally great Bjorn. thanks for that Gasol, next uh just uh a heads up to ADM, to Cargill, to Bungie, to Dreyfus, to the big guys. To we we need to co-work with established players and the new companies to to go faster. You know, and and we do not need to to compete. Uh, we need to co-create. This is a, a new mindset for for the new generations, and that's why we found it with and. Uh, a B2B model. So happy, happy to be to, to share the, the panel with a lot of you, Tony, and all of you guys. Thank you. Thanks, Gaston. Hank? Of course, I, I concur. I, I think to add on to that, just uh, is to say that I think we all need to do our part in thinking about solutions for the entire world. So we need to have localized solutions. Uh, therefore, we need a good regulatory framework worldwide also to allow the introduction of these GM plants, which solve local needs. So, because you know the challenges that we're going to face in Europe are going to be different than the ones we're going to face in in continental Africa and the ones that are going to face in the in the Pacific. You know, everybody going to have different challenges, and uh, you know, we need to make sure we keep these solutions attainable and and affordable to all. Thanks, Hank. Nicholas. Yeah, um, for me, stakeholder management. So as Gaston already mentioned, but not only multinationals, same with authorities, reach out to local bodies, EU institutions, Singapore, start your dose shares, reach out to the safety uh, safety assessor bodies uh, and just get it started. The conversation, keep on pushing the same buttons. And uh, I really believe that we can make progress. That's great, Nicholas. Thanks very much. And I think I'll just um, round things out by saying, I think everybody and the audience can see this is the most exciting time to be in the food industry I have seen in over 30 years. I mean, we said before we used to be, you know, the poor second technology cousins to people like the electronics industry and software industry, and I think no more. Um, food industry is just as exciting a technology area to be in as anywhere else. And people say that the future of food is going to be plant-based. And I think maybe it's going to be plant-based in more ways than one. And 
now I think I'm echo what Bjorn was saying, what we've all been saying is plant molecular farming is going to have its day in the sun, and pun intended there, um, that you know is finally going to come to fruition in the next few years and that we'll see it make a major contribution to sustainably and equitably feeding the people on the planet. Um, and I think, you know, maybe in the future, um, the future of animals is that they'll actually be grown in plants. Who knows? And on that note, I will finish up. And for everybody, the future of um, protein production to all the audience, thank you very much for attending the webinar today. Thanks very much for the wonderful panel there and all the insights you've given us. And uh, again, keep your eye on the website, uh, Future of Protein Production. There's more great webinars coming up. Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night, panel. Good night, audience. Thank you for listening to the Future of Protein Production podcast. We hope you gained valuable insights and knowledge about the innovative technologies and practices that are transforming the way we produce protein. Don't forget to subscribe to Protein Production Technology International, our multimedia magazine, and follow us on social media to stay up to date with the latest news and updates. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes.